there and welcome to the last episode of February already. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> it is, uh, it's almost Lent. Can you imagine that? Next week? It's got to be the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, and then it's a long journey to Easter, but hey... We're approaching the sunny times. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to listen to this episode. And thank you, above all, if you make it possible for me to do this work, if you're one of my patrons. And uh, at the beginning of the next month, I will do like a general thank you to all the new, I know, like a welcome message for all the new people that have joined the Patreon community. If you want to join that wonderful group of people, then check it out at patreon.com slash fatheroderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. The other day I was uh, filling up the tank of my <laughs> car. And I was shocked to see how expensive it had become. I almost never use my car. I only use it if I have to go to one of the parish locations that is a little bit too far to go by bike. There are a number of these. But when I was still staying with Father Henry, that is literally in the center of all these parishes. So it takes you max a maximum of half an hour to go to any of these churches. But now I am a little bit more t to the north of Wageningen. So there are some towns that take me about 45 minutes to go there. And of course, if it's windy and raining and snowing and, and storming, um, yeah, I, I sometimes take my car. I actually am very happy that I don't have to use my car for anything else. For groceries, I live close to the to the town center here so i can do all my grocery shopping uh on foot and if i need clothes or something more specific i can take my bike and just wait for the weather to clear up so i don't use a lot of gas and so when you finally fill up your car you're like <gasps> goodness gracious me this is so expensive and it's it's um I think it's now 20 cents more than a month ago, than the last time that I filled up the tank. 20 cents! That is insane! And uh, I know that everybody is always complaining about gas and gas prices, and um, I always have to laugh when I, when I hear people in North America complain about how expensive it is to drive their car, and then you actually, I have to do the conversion from gallons to liters. And I was like, dude, you're paying nothing for your gas. That is how much it costs, like, 15 years ago in the Netherlands, I think people would get an instant heart attack if they had to ever fill up their car, fill up their tank here in the Netherlands. Because I think in my country, it's one of the most expensive countries in the world when it comes to fuel. So in a way, yeah, count your blessings. But it, this does challenge me to see if I can save on that expense because it is still... You know, having even owning a car, even if I wouldn't drive it, it's still very expensive. At the beginning of the year, it had to be retested because this is a 15 year old car. It's 15 years, almost 20 years old now. So it's, it's, I think the building year is like 2001. Um, and it was just a gift. So someone, it was a secondhand car that an older person didn't dare to drive anymore so he gifted it to me but in order to get through those yearly um uh official uh controls or tests um this year 
there were extensive repairs that were necessary and they amounted to about a thousand euros for a 20-year-old car. If I'd known that in advance, I probably would have ditched the car because it's not just the maintenance that is expensive, it's the gas that is expensive. And then you pay taxes. You pay a certain amount and there is insurance that is also compulsory. So that adds up. I think if I would get rid of my car, it would save me a couple of hundred euros per month on a monthly basis. That is a lot of money. And it starts to become almost a question of, um, could I use part of that budget that I'm now spending on the car so if I need a car, I can just rent one? And it will be trouble-free. And, you know, it's, it's, it's probably starting to become the cheaper option. Of course, I would miss that convenience of being able to just take my car whenever I feel like it. But I honestly don't think I'm going to miss my car that much. So I'm thinking of, of maybe going bike and public transport only. And I was still thinking, I'm always thinking of doing something creative for Lent. Of course, you can always eat less and then just have fish on Fridays. But what's the fun in that? We can do something more challenging than that. So maybe this year, I'll just uh, co- go completely car-free during Lent. Kind of makes me regret that I spent a thousand bucks in repairing the thing if I'm not going to drive it. But it can also be a test. If I can survive these five or six weeks of Lent all the way to Easter without ever using my car... I think I can probably do that for the rest of the year as well. So maybe that's a good challenge. It will be good for the environment. It will be especially good for my wallet. (laughs) And it can help me to forge maybe even a healthier lifestyle because if I have to walk more and take my bike more often, even public transport usually involves a lot of walking, that may actually be beneficiary, beneficent. It will be good for my health. Let's not be too wordy. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. I miss the Big Bang Theory. They've taken it off the the Netflix and and it was also an Amazon Prime is one of those rare series that was on both platforms and it's nowhere to be found and I still hadn't finished season 9 and there's even a 10th season or something like that. The last two seasons, I hadn't finished the last two seasons and I just missed the presence of the Big Bang Theory. It was such a staple ingredient of my day whenever I had a tough day and I just wanted to lighten the mood, I would watch the Big Bang Theory and it would make me laugh. And and I miss it. And I'm looking for a replacement. I've already watched Parks and Recreation, which was almost as good as The Office. And The Office, I can still rewatch Office episodes because I'm reading a book about the making of The Office. So that makes gives me a, an excuse to re- go rewatch those episodes. And they're still very funny. Um, they crack me up. But I'm also I'm I'm looking for something new to watch. I tried out Friends because it's just such a famous series and I couldn't get into it because it's still so much a step back from from what they do with the Big Bang Theory what they did with The Office um, I tried Seinfeld Seinfeld uh, Cheers uh, what was that other one 
anyway, some of those older sitcoms, and I've just been spoiled, spoiled rotten by the quality of Parks and Rec and, and The Office. So I was looking for something new, and I think I may have found my new comedy series. And it's funny, and it feels a bit like Parks and Rec and, and uh, The Office. It's a bit that kind of fly-on-the-wall workplace comedy, and that's a genre that I really enjoy. But this time it takes place in, in a superstore, in a, in a supermarket, a bit, one of those big ones that you have in the United States. Um, and it is actually called Superstore. I found it on Prime. I read a tweet from someone recommending it, so I watched the first episode and I was hooked. I was like, this is funny. And it, it, it's, it's getting funnier every episode. So um, Superstore, it's not as fly-on-the-wall type of let's, oh, we're just here by accident, as, for instance, with The Office, but it has a lot of that same vibe, like, you're not supposed to see this. This is this is usually the, the stuff that happens between people in, in, in any workplace that, as a customer, you're not supposed to, uh, to be aware of. But it, that is also why it's so funny, because, well, I, of course, don't work in a superstore, I don't work in a regular office, but I have had my vacation jobs when I was still studying. So I worked in so many different types of enterprises and I worked in like big um, warehouses. I did uh, order collection. I worked in pharmaceutical industry. I did like um, even the, the animal pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> I had some spit jobs everywhere. So I did basically, um, oh, even production, like heavy duty metal production. I spent weeks and weeks for years working in a factory that made um, uh, elements for those, you know, the, the, the cable, uh, what is it? The cable, how do you call that? Cable conducting conductors that are usually hidden by the lowered ceilings. So if you remove a, a low ceiling, you see all this, this aluminum stuff that guides all the cables and the electricity cables. Now, of course, all that requires many different parts. And so I worked for years in a factory where they, where I would uh, usually work for, for four or five weeks in a row. And it was these shifts. So some one week it was in the middle of the night. The other week it was in the middle of the day. And wherever I went, you saw the same dynamics. You've got the the people with the the, you know, the nice suits. We call them the suits. And then you've got the workplace people like, that I was a part of, and we were wearing these overalls, and we were dirty and grimy at the end of the day, and fed up with the monotonous work. We would get yelled at by the suits, and so a lot of the workplace comedies are very relatable for me, because, yeah, even though it's not my day-to-day -day job, and thankfully not, because it's not the type of work that I would like to do, um, because of its monotonous nature, but I still can relate to <laughs> to these situations in Superstore. So, really enjoying it. Um, if you've seen the series, um, let me know. Let's talk about it um, on the Discord server. Scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science. Uh, you didn't expect that, right? I'm just pressing a random button here and playing, uh, like changing up the order of the ritual. This is supposed to be a, lit a sacred liturgy. How dare you start with science when we are supposed to talk about faith right now? I don't know why I pressed that button, actually. I have no scientific explanation for it. But I do have something to talk about. 
when it comes to something I talked about in the beginning of this show, which is, you know, am I going to get a new car? Right now, I'm, I'm thinking no. I probably don't need a new car. So if this one runs its course for this year, I'll get rid of it at the end of the year. Unless it gets another year. I don't, I don't want to, basically, I don't want to invest in this car anymore. It's 20 years old. If I try to sell it, I won't get anything for it. They'll, I probably will have to pay for them to pick it up and destroy it or recycle it. So, but if I were to buy a new car, I think I would go with the, the scientific progress that has been made when it comes to reducing or making cars that are uh, a lot less harmful to the environment and also a lot less expensive because they're more energy efficient than previous cars. Now, right now in, the, in my country, and I suppose also where you live, the electric cars are all, you know, all the rage. And these cars have seen so much progress, thanks to science, especially the battery science has been making so much pro- progress over the last couple of years. And what has surprised a lot of people, and even the industry, is that they originally thought um, that there would be, wouldn't be a second-hand market for these cars because these batteries would just lose their ability to charge. It's like your old phone. It keeps losing its charge very quickly and you have to recharge it several times per day so you can't really use it as your, your normal phone. It's almost built-in obsolescence. And the car industry thought that, that was going to be the same for electrical cars. Maybe that is why they were so, so you know, heavily investing in that industry because it's a nice replacement industry. Um, turns out that a lot of these electrical cars still work really well after their first run. So that's what I'm thinking about. If I need a car, and I'm first, the first question is, do I really need a car, or can I live without one? This upcoming Lent is going to be a nice uh, litmus test for that. But say I need a car because I'm still traveling to you know various European countries and it's much easier to do my work with a car than without it. Um, and if it's more, effi- more um, let's say, economical to just have my own car instead of renting one, then I think my next car, I want it to be an electrical car or a hybrid car. Now, those, of course, are very expensive if you, if you buy them new, but there is a pretty big secondhand market for those cars. So maybe that's what I would like to do. I'm sure that some of you will already have one of those hybrid cars or even maybe even electrical, fully electrical cars. Um, I'd love to hear your, your, uh, your experiences with it because I don't know anyone who has a car like that. Because for most people, this is kind of outside their budget. But... Uh, please instruct me because I'd love to learn if it's worth uh, my money. Now we're going to talk about faith. (laughs) Catholics rock! It's time for a short visit to the Peculiar Bunch. This is the place where uh, we talk about all these weird things that Catholics do and don't do. And you don't understand. It's going to be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Now, one of these puzzles that people that are not familiar with Catholic tradition often face when they enter a Catholic church is, why does it look the way it looks? Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So I figured I could talk a little bit about 
the way church, churches look or don't look. And I, I'm pretty sure that most of us will have had the experience of walking into a big cathedral or to a, into a, a nice medieval church if you live in Europe. And if you live in the United States, you may have walked into a church that is older than 1950. Oh my gosh, that is so ancient. <laughs> Sorry to make fun of you, but it's one of the things that baffled me when I went to the United States is that sometimes you have these national monuments and it's like, oh my gosh, this is one of the oldest buildings in the United States. And it's like, oh, how old is it? Um, yeah, it's from the uh, 18th century. Uh, yes, like most of the buildings in Europe. <laughs> But I, I I don't blame you for that. I mean, you have to you have to uh, be very very uh, um, you have to preserve your your monuments because they tell a story. And that is, by the way, also what I wanted to talk about. Church buildings in themselves are, of course, not just museums where you see something from the past and then you get some information about what happens. What what is most much more important for a especially for a Catholic church building is that it is a living story. It is a way for you to experience. And so it's it's the reason that Catholic churches speak to all the senses, smell, your hearing, your eyes, your touch. That is why church pews are not comfortable. It makes you aware of your your behind. You know, it's it's like that's why we kneel, we stand, we we walk, we bow, we 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 move a lot in the Catholic Church, and it's to engage your entire body because faith is supposed to have a relationship with every aspect of your life. That's kind of what it's ritualizing. So that's why we use frankincense. That's why you have. Uh, stained glass windows and why there is music in the church. It's all um, trying to engage you in the maximum way possible by using all your senses. This is also why um, these online masses uh, are in a certain way a very impoverished version of what the ideal experience would be. If you look at my masses on Sunday, sure, may be instructive and, and, and it may help you pray. But I would still encourage you to create an, a mood in your own, in the place where you are watching it. Just light a candle, lower the lights a little bit, maybe, I don't know, some, uh, smoke some frankincense. No, that's not what I wanted to say, but create a mood because I can't do that in my little chapel, my little online chapel. I just use Philips Hue lights to create a little bit of color and that's all I can do because I don't have a church to my uh, available for, for my online masses. But I hope that in the future we will be able to strike a deal with the community here next door so we can start use use a real church. But it will take time because it is an investment also of my time to make that church look nice on camera. That's one of the issues that I have with the church next door. It is a church that was built in the 50s and... Uh, it was built with a very low budget. This is was still the time that Europe was recovering from the Second World War. Um, people had to work hard, low wages, um, not a very uh, prosperous economy. And so, uh, but at the same time, the church, the Catholic Church, was growing, was expanding. Uh, the society was growing and evolving, and they were creating all these new neighborhoods, building new new houses. And so, for a lot of these new neighborhoods, 
the Catholic Church, the existing Catholic communities felt we need to have a presence there. So they built churches, but they didn't have money, so they built churches like the one next door, which is very cheaply built, using mostly concrete and, and very regular stone. They didn't have money to do figurative stained glass windows. Um, it's all very simple, and if I'm honest, I don't think it's very nice. It's It looks... Well, there are churches that are obviously even less pretty. Let's put it that way. But this is clearly, you know, just they didn't have the money to make something really nice. So what they went for instead was, well, let's go symbolic. Let's make it abstract. It's cheaper. And you can still tell a story because that's, I have to give them, the, the architects at the time, uh, even though they had, were very limited when it comes to resources, they did try to tell a story with the church. So, for instance, there is stained glass window windows in the church, but it's all like these strange rectangles and 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 squares and uh, triangles. In they used plain colored glass. So there's a bit of green, there's red, blue, a lot of primary colors, probably also because that's cheap and was just readily available. And the only extra thing that they had to pay for was to cut it up into these geometrical forms and shapes and then just put it together as a window. That probably saved them 90% of what they would pay for regular, you know, conventional stained glass windows. They did the same with the the altar. Um, they did use marble. I have to give them that. But the shapes... The shape of the altar table itself is very unbalanced. It doesn't look good. They used concrete for pillars because stone pillars or let alone marble pillars would have been cost prohibitive. And so they try to repeat this, the, the, the shapes of the pillars, which is very simple, cheap-looking stuff. They use the same shapes for the altar to create visual continuity. Ah, but it's just not very nice-looking. That that is the one thing in the church that I would like to cover with a altar cloth and just hide it from view because it's just not very. It wasn't a very successful design. Other aspects of the church were, I think, well intentioned, but I'm glad that they got rid of it. For instance, Father Henry told me that in the past, and I've seen this on black and white photos, there was a mountain in the church. Literally, they created a mountain, and it looked like rock, like something they just just cut from a mountain environment and just placed it in the church and they built a staircase next to it and they placed the tabernacle which is where you keep the consecrated hosts on top of that mountain so if you wanted to access the tabernacle you could, couldn't just walk up a flight of stairs and then just open the doors no you had to climb up that mountain and then approach the the tabernacle from the from the back the door was on the wrong side and that's where you could uh, just use it. And then you have to climb down again. It's a, it's a disaster design-wise. And it, it was also visually a, an eyesore. It was so really awful. Because the rest of the church is super geometrical and abstract. And they did actually have an idea. Like, let's make this the kind of the, the, the palace of the apocalypse, you know, where you have all these... It's like a very abstract uh, representation of of the um, 
basically God's house where the texts talk about jewels. So, well, we can't afford, afford real precious stones, but we will just tell you that this, this red triangle, that's actually uh, a ruby, and this green thing, that's an emerald. And, and they just, they basically came up with a story to justify the very, very simple abstract uh, architecture. But then... They were trying to do too much. They just went overboard. The architect should have had a priest who said, "Uh, dude, let's not do that. Yeah, I see what you want to do, but no, it's like this clashes. You're trying to do too much. No, it's not necessary. Let's keep it simple. The problem was that the architect, I think, was related to the pastor, to the priest who built the church. Maybe even had financial stakes in the architectural stuff. I don't know. But I'm glad that uh, about 10 years ago, they decided to get rid of that stupid mountain. And But then, over time, they still started to add new elements to the church. So, for instance, they didn't like singing on the, you know, the in the back of the church where the where the organ was. And so they moved the organ, or they, maybe they even bought a new organ, and they placed it on the left side uh, of the altar where it blocks the one of the walls where they would have their side chapel for the Virgin Mary. The church is called, it's named after the Virgin Mary, Virgo Regina, Virgo Maria Regina. So the Virgin Mary Queen. Um, and that there is a, you know, okay statue um, of the Virgin Mary. It's still very modern, but at least it's figurative. You can still see that it's the Virgin Mary with the child. And it was always it had her place of honor on the left side. And then they put that big organ there, which is a beautiful organ. And also, uh, in terms of quality, I love the, the sound. I love that type of organ. But it is obfuscating the, the part of that left side of the church. And then they placed a, a piano on the altar because... They like to sing, now that they don't sing up upstairs anymore in the back of the church, the choir, there's only one place for the choir, and that is behind the altar. And it, 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 it's well-intentioned, but it completely breaks the narrative of the church. All of a sudden, the church is just looking unbalanced, and it, it, it doesn't, even with the story, that explains why the church looks like it looks because it's so full now with foreign elements. It it it's no cohesive story anymore, and you, in, you intuitively can tell. You know, the moment you enter the church, like there is something wrong with this church. It's it's, and I, I went back and saw the old black and white photos of when the church was uh, first inaugurated and blessed by the bishop, and ooh, it looked very austere and very simple. But there was a certain balance to the architecture. I, I don't like the style. I still don't like it. But at least it made sense. And now it's just this mishmash. In French, they have a beautiful word for that. Bric-a-brac. It's this bric-a-brac of all sorts of different elements. And it's just thrown together without any cohesive vision or story. And, and that, if there's one thing I'd love to teach parishes and tell people about, it is like architecture in itself is storytelling. And, and the moment you start ignoring the story that the architect wanted to tell, you are risking to break the entire story. And then it becomes ugly.
Uh, there are very modern churches that still, if you enter them, in France you have a number of those churches. Um, Poland has done quite a bit of innovative architectural stuff with their newer churches. And even though you may not like the style and you would prefer like a medieval church or a, a cathedral, but even these modern churches can still have a certain beauty because it all makes sense. And you can tell intuitively when something is just ugly is because people have been just throwing stuff in there that didn't that doesn't belong so one of the ways i think where we can improve with what we have as a catholic church is by looking taking a, a, a almost a a more um objective look at the church and ask ourselves what we see now does it truly belong there flowers that's another thing people just Sometimes just put flowers because, well, flowers, because flowers. But the flowers themselves are just garishly uh, put together with, with colors that don't match. And they put the flowers on the altar and then they try to kind of mix it up by putting the candles on one side and the flowers on the other side of the altar, thereby ignoring the rules that are, you know, all symbolic. Everything around the altar is meant to be symbolic. And has a story to tell. And if you just just arbitrarily start to mess that up because, yeah, let's do something different, it, you, it doesn't work anymore. And it becomes ugly. And I think a lot of the criticism that some people have when it comes to newer churches is because they're not looking at the original intent of the architect. They are looking at a watered-down version of, what, of the story that the architect tried to tell. And it's because we just like to clutter up stuff. So I think that we need to go back to our roots. Declutter and let the original story, even though it was done with limited means, but it's always a better story than, than if you have something. It's like putting ketchup on your, on your pasta in Italy. I like ketchup, I like pasta, but not together! Don't do that. It is a mortal sin. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Uh, I did some reading, and it was super fascinating. I finally got to read the appendices of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. This is something I have always skipped until today, because I was afraid. The appendices is something that Tolkien wrote to satisfy the very um, motivated, fanatical fan base that had uh, gathered around his books. And they wanted to know more about that mysterious world that he created. They wanted to have more backstory. Where does this come from? And Tolkien deliberately uh, wrote The Lord of the Rings taking place in an old world with runes and, and remnants of old civilizations. And he even d d developed some languages, long-forgotten languages, and people were just curious. They wanted to know, but what happened there before? Tell us that story. And so um, Tolkien caved in, and he wrote The Silmarillion, which is a collection of stories that is kind of the historical background of those the Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. And, and, and based on that, he also added the appendices as background information uh, that is necessary to know and is relevant to the places where the story of The Lord of the Rings takes place. And so the appendices 
are uh, is is the story that was bought by Amazon from the Tolkien estate and that they are now using for the Rings of Power television series. However, they made some uh, one fundamental change to the whole thing. That is the appendices and also the Silmarillion. Silmar- Silmarillion is a collection of stories that cover thousands of years. And of course, that doesn't work on television. If you want to tell a cohesive story and not have people just kind of uh, disconnect, you, you need leading characters. And so what they did was they condensed the story so what takes thousands of years in the original appendices will now just span one generation. Some people are outraged by that. I would say that's a daring thing to do. That's a daring choice. And if it can open us up to that bigger story, if it can make people more interested in reading the appendices and, and the Silmarillion, then I wouldn't worry about it. It's just a primer as long as we know that this is not the original story and that well, there's so much more to discover if you go back to the original written stories, it's the same with The Hobbit. Even The Hobbit. I love The Hobbit movies and The, and the Lord of the Rings, but it's not the books. There's so much more in the books. So even the movies are a very condensed version of the story that Tolkien wrote. I don't think these two have to be in competition with one another. I think the movies, and in this case television show, can lead people to the source material. And so there's even more to discover. So that's why I I convinced myself I need to read these appendices. And one of the reasons that I never got to reading The Silmarillion or the appendices is what that it scared me because it covered thousands of years. And you have so many different names and stuff and... both connected and disconnected events, I just lost track. And I still think that the appendices are a tough read. And I'm glad that I've, over time, gathered some information here and there. So I just sat down and forced myself to read. I've only read the the Appendix A so far, which uh, narrates the story of of Numenor, which was this, this world, this island, basically, that was created... Uh, for a specific reason. It was to protect people from the dangers of Middle-earth. And so they that was a safe haven. And the people that lived there th- started to thrive. The only thing is, this, so this was, I think, the place for the half-elves that chose to become mortal. So half-elves actually are not supposed to exist in, in, in Tolkien's universe. And so at one point, the Valar gave the half-elves a choice. Either you choose to become an elf, and then you will have all the benefits of being elf, you live forever, or you become man, and you'll have all the benefits of being man, but you won't live forever, you will die. And so, people made a choice. Elrond, for instance, chose to become an elf. His brother, what's his name? What's his name? Chose to become a man. And so, but they still wanted to protect him against a you know, fully regular human life on in Middle-earth where it was just uh, a pretty dangerous place to be. So that's why Numenor was given to these former half-elves. If Again, I may be mistaken, but that this is how I remember the first appendix story. And then what's fascinating about the way Tolkien describes this is that the, the more they thrived, these, these, these humans, the more they actually regretted their choice. And they started to envy the elves. 
And because the more you enjoy your life, the more you want to make it last. And even though the, the humans on Numenor um, actually got to live three times longer than normal, regular human beings, which is already, you know, pretty a pretty great gift from the Valar, th- at one point they rebel against the choice that they made themselves and they now want to conquer the West where the elves live because they feel they have a right to live forever. And that's where things go wrong and ultimately Numenor is destroyed. Because you made your choice, you cannot go back. Just count your blessings instead of of, of coveting something that is no longer yours. You made a decision. The Valar didn't make it, they just told you to to choose. It's like little Grogu has to choose between, am I going back to the Mandalorian or do I want to stay and become a, a Jedi? It's But once you make your choice, it's definitive. You have to stick with it. So that is that is basically the story that is told in Appendix A. And from what I've heard, it is the, the overarching story, um, at least for the first season of uh, of the, the the Rings of Power. It's it's amazing. It's uh, unbelievable. And but when you read it, you're like, yeah, this definitely needs some extra storytelling because you cannot translate this textually to a t- television show. So what upsets some people. It's like, oh, but it's just fan fiction. They're making up all these new characters and they're just completely destroying Tolkien's intent. I'm like, Tolkien never intended this to be a story like The Lord of the Rings. It was just some background information for the fans. And if ha- if Tolkien had been able to live on Numenor and live for 300 years instead of 70-something, 70, some, he probably would have told more stories and maybe he would have written a story that is similar to what they're doing now with the television show. So anyway, the appendices really made me more uh, sympathetic to the plight of uh, these television writers, what they're trying to do to bring us, to bring to life this, this fall of Numenor and all these stories that form the historical background for, um, for, for the Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Google made a lamp, a desk lamp, and I wanted... And I can't have it because it's only for their employees. But it is genius. This is something that was very intriguing. It was an article uh, about what Google calls the D-Light. And if you work at Google headquarters, you get one of those lights. And it is, uh, you, can, you can operate it through your Hubble, your, your, your Hubble. <laughs> Gay Google, uh, I mean, hey Google. <laughs> so that, that in itself is not that special. I have all my lights in the house, more than forty of them. Well, actually, no, that's including all the the, the various uh, configurations of the lights. But I have a ton of lights that react to my commands. So, what makes this desk lamp so so fantastic? 
it is you can that, that the fact that you can use it both to to uh, to light up your desk to use it for writing or whatever you have on your desk but then you can flip it and it becomes a video light it has this diffused surface which is very similar to the elgato uh, lights that i have on my desk that i use for for all my videos but this desk lamp does the same and i thought like whoa why didn't anyone think of that because we have all been in so many skype calls and google meetings and whatnot and and uh what is it uh, no it's microsoft meetings where you're always looking at someone who's sitting in front of a window and so you see a silhouette or people are in uh, uh, just in a in a they only have a desk lamp that lights them from the side and you, they have these harsh shadows. I have that when I'm trying to stream my games uh, and I use the webcam and I only have lights on the left side of the screen and it is just really terrible lights. And so to have a desk lamp that does both that you can just swivel around and it, then it, it's this perfect diffused light for a video call. My goodness, why didn't anyone else think of that? I want one of those desk lamps. And, well, unfortunately, Google only makes it available to uh, their employees. But this was a story that went viral. And I'm pretty sure that Google will see the opportunity here, that people want, will want to have that light. I certainly want to have it. I don't care how much it costs. It's so useful. I, use, I, I need something simple on, I, I have this configuration with these big, big Elgato lights, but those are just there permanently, and they don't look very pretty. So if I can just have a desk lamp that does the same and is even a smart lamp, yeah, there's a market for that. And I'm sure that if Google is not going to uh, market that's this D light of theirs, I'm sure that companies like Logitech will just uh, see the opportunity and will make their own version. I hope they will, and I am their first customer if they do. That wraps it up for this episode of My Weekly Show. Thank you so much for the privilege of your time. For those of you that are supporting me on patreon.com slash fatherroderick, there is another show called Father Roderick to the Max, which is waiting for you soon in your exclusive podcast feed. Feet? Did I say feet? I mean feed with a D. <laughs> And I will talk a little bit about uh, a, an app that you can use on your phone to record very cohesive, very well-constructed stories for the interwebs. Um, also talk about um, cooking for multiple guests. That's a challenge that I am facing soon. I want to talk about how much I learn from looking back at old notes that I took in 2019 and gave me almost a snapshot of what my life looked like back then so I can measure how much I've improved over time. We'll talk about a live action series helmed by none other than the great Ridley Scott in preparation on Amazon Prime, Blade Runner. Uh, we'll talk about that and I want to talk about a VR MMORPG. Zenith VR. All that and more coming to you on Father Roderick to the Max, the show available to all my patrons. Doesn't matter which tier. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Father Roderick. And I will talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.